Out of the depths, Lord, we cry to you, asking that you would hear our voice, asking that your ears would be attentive to the voice of our pleas for mercy. For, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We wait for you. Our soul waits. And in your word we hope. We wait for you more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Lord, our hope is that in you there is steadfast love. And that with you there is plentiful redemption. And you have promised that you will redeem your people from all their iniquities. Father, we ask that you would use this word this morning to change us, renew us, to make yourself the dominant reality in our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to imagine what you would feel and what it would be like if somehow, just, just, you know, suspend your disbelief with me for a second, if somehow the Garden of Eden were to be found and you were to be summoned to enter the Garden of Eden and as you made your way toward the entrance to the garden, you saw there the cherubim and the flaming sword. Imagine what you should feel as you thought about entering that sacred, holy of holy place. I hope that you would feel the fear of God. I hope that you would be conscious of the fact that, that you're a sinner and that God is holy and that entering into the presence of God because he's holy and because we're sinful is dangerous for us. Dangerous because his holiness tolerates no uncleanness which results, which arises from sin. But I hope also, because I know that many, most of the people here I think are members of this church, I hope that also you would be clinging to the blood of Christ in that moment. And you would be thinking, Christ died for me, he paid the penalty for my sin, and therefore, the ancient gates have been opened. And because of him, because I'm clothed with his righteousness, I can stand in this holy place. I can enter into the very presence of God, even, as the author of Hebrews says, boldly go there. But even as a believer in Christ, even as one who is united to Christ by faith, I hope you would still feel fear, the fear of of the holy God. We're told in Genesis 3 that when God drove the man and the woman out of the garden, he placed the cherubim there in the east to guard the way to the tree of life. And then as we make our way through the Bible, we find repeated instances of these angelic figures. And in the passage before us here at Genesis 32, I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Genesis 32, and, and you can track uh, with the text as we make our way through it. As Jacob makes his way back into the land of promise, he is going to encounter these angels of God. And I think that 
Moses intends the significance of this. I think he intends for his audience to think of those cherubim. And I think he means for his audience to think in terms of, we don't have access to the Garden of Eden, but we have access to the land of promise. And in the same way that the cherubim guarded Eden, these angels that Jacob encounters, they guard the land of promise. And then as you go across the rest of the Pentateuch, you see this repeatedly. Moses, in in Exodus 3, is going to encounter the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. And then again, as as Moses makes his way back to Egypt, he's going to be encountered by the angel of the Lord. And then in Numbers 22, as Balaam, as as he makes his way to the people of God, which it's the people of God in Egypt. It's not that Egypt has become the Holy Land, but that's where the people are, the people of God are. As Balaam makes his way to the camp of Israel, he's going to encounter this angel with a drawn sword in his hand. It's almost like the cherubim and the flaming sword. And then in Joshua chapter 5, as Joshua, they've, they've crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise, and he too encounters this captain of the Lord's host, this angel with a drawn sword in his hand. It's as though as these people, Jacob, Moses, Balaam, Joshua, as they go to the place where God dwells, it's as though they encounter this cherubim like the one that was placed there in Genesis chapter 3. As we we make our way through Genesis 32, I want to invite you to keep all this in mind, to think about what Jacob ought to feel, how Jacob ought to respond if he he really knew what he ought to know at this point. How would you expect him to respond? Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 32. And I I hope that my sermons are kind of almost a Bible study methods class. So so in other words, I hope that as you listen to me work through these narratives, I hope that your ears are are perking up and you're learning how to read the Bible and how to study the Bible. So forgive me here, but let me just make some of this explicit, all right? Look with me at at verse 1, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 32. We read here that Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. So here's a Bible study methods principle. You should think in terms of where have I seen phrases like this before? And and when you encounter something like this, you should ask yourself, where else in the narrative does Jacob encounter angels of God? And I think probably some of you are thinking, well, Genesis 28, of course. Exactly. That's exactly right. As Jacob, you remember back there, Genesis 27, Jacob steals the blessing from, from his father Isaac and from his brother Esau, and then he has to flee because Esau wants to kill him. And as he's leaving the land... He comes to this place called Luz, and he encounters angels of God. And and very similar things happen there that happen here. On that occasion, he sees these angels of God ascending and descending on this stairway or something like that in Genesis 28, and he says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. Well, look at what he does here. Genesis 32, verse 1, the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. I mean, it's worded so similarly to Genesis 28. So you should associate these things in your mind. And if you noticed in the passage that was read earlier that Randall read in in Hosea 12, uh, uh, Hosea brings together these two encounters. 
It's, it's like Hosea is picking up on the, the clues that Moses has laid down. And Hosea says, oh, Moses wants us to associate Jacob encountering God at Bethel and then get Jacob encountering God on this occasion that we're looking at here in Genesis 32. And so Hosea puts them right there together in Hosea 12. This is God's camp. And then at the end of verse 2, so he called the name of that place Machanayim. And if you've got, if you're looking at an ESV like I am, down in the lower footnote, it tells you Machanayim means two camps. Now look with me at verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So you got two camps at the beginning, you got two camps at the end. Uh, this is marking this little section off as a unit. And then as we work our way through these verses, um, you're going to see corresponding elements in this unit. So what I'm telling you is that this is the way that Moses signals to you that verses 1 through 8 should be read together. And then when, when you enter the next verse, in verse 9, you're in a new section, and you should start looking for other, uh, other links, okay? So Bible study methods here, okay? So um, Jacob, he, he's entering the promised land, and he encounters these angels. This should signal to us he's entering into the holy place. And as we said a moment ago, as I was saying in the introduction, I think we should be thinking, Jacob should fear God. Jacob is entering into the holy land. He's, he's coming into the place where God has said, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to be with you there. I'm going to be present. So, so Jacob, I submit to you, ought to be feeling the fear of God. That's not what Jacob's feeling. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers. Now look down at verse 6. I'm not going to read the whole verse, but the messengers returned. Okay, so these are corresponding references to the messengers. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the word for messengers is the same word for angels, which I think is one of the, one of the, the interesting sort of word plays that is going on in this passage because it's like God puts these angels in front of Jacob and Jacob gets angels of his own, and, and, and he sends them out to his brother Esau. And I think immediately we see that Jacob is beginning to miss the point. What Jacob needs to deal with is God, and what Jacob sets out to deal with is Esau. Now, uh, don't misunderstand me here. There are times, like Jesus is teaching, he says... If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, first go reconcile, be reconciled to your brother. Okay, yeah, that's right. Amen, absolutely. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is, I submit to you, Jacob ought to be fearing God, and instead Jacob is fearing Esau. And Jacob ought to be worshiping God, and instead he's going to, he's going to offer what looks like gifts and sacrifices to Esau. So I, I think... In this passage, Jacob is really missing, missing the point, just like he was in Genesis 28. If you remember in Genesis 28, when God revealed himself to him at Bethel, I, I argued there that Jacob ought to respond, oh, God is going to be with me? Well, this liberates me from, from worry. It liberates me from the need to, to try to swindle people. It, it frees me to love God and to enjoy God's blessing. And instead, uh, Jacob gets all excited about the place 
Surely God is in this place. No, that's not the point, Jacob. God said he was, God said he was going to be with you. This place is irrelevant. So here again, I think Jacob is missing the point. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them. And listen to what he says in verse 4. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. There, there's going to be all this language in this passage that indicates that Jacob is humbling himself before Esau, submitting himself to Esau, and it's all misplaced. He should be talking about my Lord Yahweh, my Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he should be dealing with. Not, I mean, yeah, he needs to get right with Esau, but he first needs to get right with God. And by, by putting his attention on Esau, what he's revealing, I think, is that he, Jacob, is distracted by the fear of man. And he's distracted by earthly concerns that keep him from seeing what the real issue is in his life. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Servant's a key word in the Bible, right? All through uh, the Pentateuch, we're, we're going to read about the Lord's servant, Moses. And Jacob is clearly the one whom the Lord has designated as his servant. He's the, the one through whom the blessing is going to come, the one through whom the promise is going to be realized. Jacob is not Esau's servant. Jacob is Yahweh's servant. And then he, he communicates here, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. That's another key phrase in the book of Genesis. All the way back in Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, so I think that Moses wants us to read this and ask ourselves, why isn't Jacob seeking favor in God's sight. And I would invite you to look at your life and to ask yourself, what is the dominant reality in my life? Whose favor am I seeking? Whose approval matters most to me? And if I were confronted with this kind of situation, where would my heart go? If I were coming into a situation where I knew there's somebody in that land that wanted to kill me 20 years ago, and that's what Jacob is doing. Esau, 20 years ago, Esau wanted to kill Jacob. That's why he fled. Now, after 20 years, he's coming back. Esau still wants to kill him, but what is Jacob's priority? I think Jacob's priority should be, I need to be right with God. Here I am encountering these angels of God. This should be signifying to Jacob that he's entering into the holy land, the holy place where God dwells. And I think his heart should be focused on the Lord. So do you fear God or do you fear man? Verse 6, the messengers return. So between verse 3, when Jacob sends the messengers, verses 4 and 5 I think is the central part of this section. And it really focuses on that, that statement at the end of verse 5, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And now in verse 6, corresponding to verse 3, the messengers returned to Jacob. We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. 
and there are 400 men with him. And they don't, they don't elaborate, or at least Moses doesn't present their elaboration. So we don't know what these 400 men are for. We don't know if Esau is getting ready to throw a big welcome party, have a big parade with all these people to celebrate the return of his long-lost brother, or whether they are an army. And Esau means to, to at last have the vengeance that he has long sought on his brother Esau. We don't know. But, again, this should, this should cause us to think about other episodes in the book of Genesis because there was another occasion when uh, somebody in the, in the key line of descent gathered together almost 400 people, 318, and, and came out after somebody who'd been lost, somebody who'd been carried away to the east, just like Jacob has gone away to the east. Remember Abraham. Abraham went and rescued Lot with 318 people. And these, these sort of points of correspondence, I think, should invite us to think about, and, and I think Moses does this all through Genesis 32, he wants us to think about the difference between Abraham and Jacob. And he wants to, us to think about the difference between the, the interactions, the relationships between Abraham and Lot and Jacob and Esau. So just to reflect on that for a moment, you, you remember how Abraham responded to the Lord. The Lord appears to Abraham, and Abraham is like, oh, you want me to leave everything? Let's go. I'm on it. We're out of here. And then Lot is carried off captive, and, and Abraham, his attitude is, that's my kinsman. I'm bound to him. I'm going to rescue him, whatever it costs me, whatever I have to, have to risk. And so he goes and attacks like four kings who have, who have defeated everybody in his region to bring Lot back. And even before that, you remember, Abraham had this great wealth, and Lot had this great wealth. And Abraham said to Lot, you take the best part of the land. And then if we think about, if we think about Jacob, oh, there's a blessing. I think I'll steal that from my brother. Oh, my father-in-law has flocks? I'll steal those flocks from my father-in-law. And, and the Lord, you know, said to Jacob, I'll be with you. And Jacob says, oh, this place must be really important. We, I think Moses wants us, Moses wants to commend the response and the lifestyle of Abraham, and he wants to discourage the response and the lifestyle of Jacob. I'm not being moralistic here. I'm saying, I think Moses has an agenda. And Moses wants people to respond like Abraham responded. He doesn't want people to respond like Jacob has responded. He doesn't want to have... He doesn't want people to have relationships with their family, their brothers, like Jacob has with Esau. He does want you to learn wisdom. He wants you to learn. If you steal your brother's birthright and you steal your brother's blessing, he's probably going to want to kill you. <laughs> he also wants you to learn if you're generous to your brother and you say to him, you take the best part of the land. Or if you say to him, you got yourself in trouble, I'll risk everything I have, my own life and person, to... to to get you back, to deliver you. Well, that's going to lead to harmony. That's going to lead to joy. That's going to that's cause everybody who knows about what you've done to think you're a hero. That's great. You want to live that way. So there are 400 men with Esau. Verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And here... I think Moses is showing us what Jacob fears. 
Jacob doesn't fear God. He should. Jacob fears Esau. Jacob hasn't learned Job 28, 28. It's a great verse. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Jacob doesn't have this fundamental biblical wisdom that is the fear of God. And the world is not going to teach you this wisdom. The world is going to say, you can get away with it. Go ahead, indulge yourself. Nobody's going to punish you. Have at it. Cultivate your lust, your greed, your, your pride. Show it to everybody. That's what the world is going to say. The world is lying to you. The world is not taking into account that there is a holy God who is marking all these things. But with him, as Psalm 130 verse 4 says, with him there is forgiveness. With God there is forgiveness. Therefore, he is to be feared. He's the one who can forgive because he's the one whose standard is transgressed. He's the one we should fear for that reason. Jacob hasn't learned wisdom. Jacob doesn't know the fear of God. And so, verse 7, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And let's just take stock of this. Jacob comes to the camp of God. He sees these angels, and he says, this is the camp of God. And then apparently he names it two camps because you've got God's camp with the angel, and then you've got Jacob's camp. And then it's like Jacob's perspective goes from being aware of the Lord to being totally worldly and horizontal and earth-centered. And now the two camps are just Jacob. My one camp over here, my other camp over here, and that other camp with the angels that really is what he needs to be concerned about? Not even a consideration. Now you might say to me, well, but he does pray in verses 9 through 12. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, he's moving in a good direction here. But he, look at even what he prays. Look at verse, verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And I would just point you to verse 12. You said, I will surely do you good. So there's the do you good. He's bracketing verses 9 through 12 for us. Verse 10, he, he's, he's, he's doing well. He's addressing the one true living and true God, the one true God. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. That's good, yeah. He's got steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed and emet, this is all good. He's right on the character of God. He's, he's right on identifying himself as God's servant there in verse 10. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Yes, absolutely, amen. You had nothing, Jacob, and now you have all these people. We're about to see all the wealth that Jacob has accumulated. In the, it's reflected in the gift that he gives to Esau. It's stupendous and amazing. So this is all magnificent. But look at verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Um, I, I'm going I'm to, spoiler alert, okay? I, I hate to do this, but it's just, I've got to do it to make the point I'm trying to make, okay? Drop your eyes down to verse 30. 
Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And it's not Esau that threatens Jacob. It's not Esau from, from whom he needed to be delivered. It's, it's the angel of the Lord that he wrestled with all night. It's the, it's the face of God that he saw and that he was delivered in spite of that. Okay, so he, he needs to be delivered from God. And he needs to fear God. He needs to, be, he needs to be concerned with the danger that the holy God poses to him, not the earthly Esau. And so in many ways, he's right on, but in some crucial ways, he's just slightly off. And you've, you know how this works. If you're slightly off this way, when you get that miles up into the air, you're way off. And so he, if he's off on who it is that he needs to be delivered from, that's pretty significant. If he's off on who it is that he needs to fear, this is, this is really problematic. So he fears Esau. He thinks he needs to be delivered from Esau in verse 11. And he thinks that his biggest concern is that Esau is going to come and attack him, the mothers with the children. Now, that's a valid concern. It's a valid concern. Esau may very well have harbored this, this rage against his brother for the last 20 years, and he may very well have these 400 men because he's ready to come and attack Jacob and just obliterate him and finally have the blood that he has so long desired. But think about the promises that Jacob has heard. Jacob has heard the Lord say, Jacob, I'm going to bless you. And Jacob, I'm going to give you this land that you are now entering. And Jacob, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, I think that, I think that if you've seen God, and if you've heard those kinds of promises from God, in a way, you ought to regard yourself as bulletproof, unassailable invincible. And you know what? Even if he kills me, God's still going to accomplish his purposes. God's going to keep his promises. If he kills all my children, one of them is going to escape and the Lord's going to bring about the line of descent through that one who escapes. In other words, what I'm saying to you is if Jacob had known God the way he needs to have known God, he would have been liberated from this fear of Esau. And he would be ready to say, look, I'm going to approach Esau with humility, and I'm going to try to be reconciled to him, and, and even if he kills me, I'm going to trust the Lord. But he only gets there. He only gets there if God is the dominant reality in his life. If God is not the dominant reality in his life, you can just read the story of Esau, and that's what you're going to get. That, that's, that's the way it's going to work out. You're going to have family turmoil. You're going to have uh, relational problems, you're going to have theological problems, you're going to have unnecessary fears. It's going to turn out that Esau is not, not coming to kill him. This is like a welcome party. Esau is ready to be reconciled. That's the way it's going to turn out. And so all of this fear that Jacob feels is actually, in reality, unwarranted and unnecessary. But the only thing that would deliver him from it is the fear of God.
Verse 12, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is a reiteration of of the promise that God made to Abraham, you know, that language of sand of the sea. This is almost, the promise is even worded the very way it was worded to Abraham. But you can see here, I think, that though Jacob knows the promise, and though to some degree Jacob knows who God is, and he even knows true things about God's character, I think we would agree the promise has not had the effect upon Jacob that it needs to have had. And and thinking about Jacob this way, none of us should respond like, oh, I'm so much better than Jacob. We We should all look at this and say, Lord, in what ways am I like this? Lord, in what ways do you need to grow me? In what ways am I aware of who you are? I know what you've promised, and yet the promises have not, they've not come home to me like they need to. This week I was, I was with one of my children. I was going over Isaiah 58, 11. What a promise. What a verse. It says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I mean, you hear words like that from the living God and what, what should that do to your approach to life? How should that affect the way that you, you take up your tasks, the way that you do the laundry, the way that you do the dishes, The way that you talk to your children, this should affect everything, shouldn't it? The way that you think about people that you disagree with at work, it should affect everything. The Lord said he's going to make my bones strong. The Lord said he's going to make me like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's what he's going to do for me. I can handle this. I can endure. I can persevere. I can rejoice. I can hope all things, bear all things, Believe all things. And it's all coming from faith, isn't it? It's all, it's all coming from the fact that you believe that God is going to do these things for you in Christ. Look at verse 13. So he stayed there that night. Drop your eyes down to verse 21 at the end of the verse. He himself stayed that night in the camp. Okay, so that night, stayed there that night, bracketing verses 13 through 21 for us. Verse 13, he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. They've translated this word present. Uh, This word is used nine times in the book of Leviticus, and it's always translated offering. It's the the Hebrew word mincha. It's It's a sacrificial term. It's a term used to describe what you offer up to Yahweh. It's it's used all over the place in the Pentateuch. And so it's almost like Jacob, instead of and you remember chapter 28 he said he was going to pay a tithe a tenth of everything to the Lord we never read of that in Genesis you know Ecclesiastes says don't be the fool who makes a vow and then doesn't pay it I mean maybe Jacob paid the vow but Moses never records it here Jacob takes an offering but he's not going to give it to the Lord he's going to give it to Esau I think it's just another indication of the way that he's thinking wrongly about these things. He stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Uh, Look down at verse 20. You shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. Again, Esau's servant. 
is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him. This is the word that's translated in Leviticus, make atonement. Or you could, you could maybe even bring in propitiate. I may propitiate his wrath. And then when it goes on, it says, I may appease him there in verse 20 with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. And then look over at 33, um, 33.10. Near the end of that verse, Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. No, Jacob. Sorry, no. Seeing the face of Esau is not, not like seeing the face of God. You are theologically off here. And, and in between, in 3220, he names this place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. That's what he needs to be concerned with, seeing God face to face, not Esau. He needs to be concerned with an offering to God, not an offering to Esau. He needs to concern, be concerned with propitiating the wrath of God, not propitiating. I mean, if he gets the wrath of God propitiated, the wrath of Esau will take care of itself. As we will see, it, it already really has. But look at this gift that he offers in verse 14. 200 female goats. Now, um, the economy of, ancient, of the ancient world is not like our economy, okay? Um, I don't know that they ever traded a goat for um, something that represented value like currency. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I, I just, just to try to help us get our heads around the enormity of this gift, I just Googled things like, how much does a goat cost, okay? And, and you know, there's a range because it's going to depend upon the breeding of the goat and the quality of the goat and the age of the goat. It's going to depend on a lot of factors. But I just chose the figure $100, okay? Which you, I think you'd be doing well to get a goat for $100. And Jacob here, he's... he's, he's making an offering to Esau, so he's probably not choosing lousy, worthless goats. He wants this offering to be impressive, so he's probably chosen healthy, attractive, good goats to give to his brother. 200 of those things. 200 times $100 is $20,000. That's the first item on the list. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, and and it seems that the number is smaller. Perhaps the male goats were regarded as more valuable because you could, uh, you know, reproduce with them. So I just chose the number $200 for those. That's $4,000 more for the 20 male goats. And then uh, 200 ewes. And I just chose the figure uh, $200 for the price of a ewe. That's another $40,000. 20 rams. I just chose the number $400 for a ram. I think that's reasonable. Maybe it's a, whatever. $8,000 for the 20 rams. Verse 15, and here I, I need to qualify this, okay? Verse 15, 30 milking camels. I think probably in that world, uh, camels were more current than they are in our world, okay? In other words, it's probably a lot easier to get, less expensive to get a camel in the Middle East than it would be to get a camel in Kentucky, okay? Okay. Um, but I chose the lower end of the price that came up on the camel. And a camel was estimated at like 5000 to, you know, $30,000. So I just chose $5,000 as my price for the camels. 30 of those guys, $150,000. 
any, any way you go, a camel is an expensive animal because it's almost like an ancient car. Would you have 30 cars to give as an offering? To, would you have, you know, I mean, we're already up to 440 animals with the 30 camels. We're, we're now at 470 animals that Jacob is giving to Jacob. And we're not done. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And, and with my rough calculations, I added all the numbers up, $260,000 worth of animals. You know, I mean, this is today's currency, but the point is, this is a massive gift that Jacob gives to Esau. It's a gift of enormous wealth, a quarter of a million dollars. As, Esau, as Jacob is coming home, Jacob presents to Esau a gift that would translate into that kind of money in our day, in our, in our culture. Maybe it was a tithe, I don't know. Verse 16, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first. Notice how meticulous Jacob is being about this. He, he, he puts space between the collections of animals probably because he wants the first 200 animals to arrive and, and Esau to be overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, all of this is for me? Oh my goodness, my brother has just given me a gift of 20,000, and then here come 20 more animals. And, and he's like, my goodness, this, this brother of mine is coming home. with. And then here come 200 more. And every time these servants are to say to Esau, verse 17, he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are an offering, a, a mincha, a present sent to my Lord Esau. Your servant, my Lord, all subservience, all deference, and moreover, he is behind us. He's coming. He's giving all this to you, and he's coming. Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. So he's catechized these people. This is how you approach him. This is what you say to him. Imagine if Jacob had been this diligent about helping his people know the Lord. Imagine if he had been this concerned with God's kingdom, with the scriptures, with the promises. And this is where I think we see his concerns are misdirected. They're misplaced. Verse 20, you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Jacob needs to be thinking about appeasing the Lord. He needs to be thinking about seeing the Lord's face. He needs to be thinking about the Lord accepting him. And so do you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, if God is holy and I'm a sinner, and if this God is the one who is to be feared because he's the one who has forgiveness, well, how, how is it that I would ever pass by the cherubim and the flaming sword and be allowed to enter into his presence? And if that's what you're asking, we've got great news for you. 
Because what this God has done is he has sent his son. He has not spared his own son, the only begotten son of God, who took on flesh, as we will confess later in the service. And he came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. And he suffered in our place. And he died the death that we deserve to die. So that everyone who turns from their sin and places their hope and trust in Christ can go boldly before the very throne of God. And be accepted there. I think at this point, the Lord has had enough. The Lord has seen enough, and he's had enough. And so that brings us to the end of this passage, verses 22 through 32, where we have this this really, I think, surprising and puzzling, mysterious episode. And in keeping with what we've seen to this point, let me just draw your attention to the way that verse 22 says that the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and there's a footnote on the word children that says, or sons, and then look at, look at down at verse 32, therefore to this day the people of Israel, and literally that reads the sons of Israel. So you know you've got uh, the, the sons or children of Jacob in verse 22, and then the sons or children of Jacob in verse 32, bracketing this passage. And, and as we've seen before, there are other correspondences as we make our way through this. So Moses is marking this out for us as a unit. So verse 22, that same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and they render this crossed the ford of the Jabbok. You could translate it passed over the ford of the Jabbok. And this word passed over is going to be used repeatedly here. I think because in the same way that the destroying angel is going to pass over the houses of the Israelites, Jacob is encountering a destroying angel here that he's going to wrestle with. Verse 23, he took them and sent them across the stream. He caused them to pass over. There it is again. And everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And this this figure is first identified as a man in verse 24. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And what we should see here, even here, is the mercy of God. Because the reality is that if, if you began to wrestle with an angel, this could be over really quickly. And this angel is mercifully, patiently wearing Jacob down and bearing with Jacob's insolence. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... And I think this doesn't mean that Jacob is somehow overcoming this heavenly being. Rather, I think what it means is this angel has been patiently bearing with Jacob and Jacob is not learning what he needs to learn. Jacob is not getting the point. And so he's going to need to be touched. So verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, this, this word that's translated touched here is the same word that's, 
that's used to describe the way that the Israelites were to take the blood and touch it to the lintel and the doorposts at the Passover. And this guy touches Jacob's hip. And, you know, I, I, again, I don't think that all of a sudden this guy got some new power that he didn't have before. I think that what we're to see here is that this guy has been mercifully, patiently bearing with Jacob, and now Jacob's not getting the point, so Jacob needs to be helped. And the way that he's going to help Jacob is he's going to cripple him. He touches his hip, and it goes out of socket. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, I think at this point, Jacob knows who this guy is. And here again, we still see Jacob's, he's thick-headed. Jacob, the Lord has already blessed you in Genesis 28. Do you remember? You actually made a vow on that occasion. You already have this blessing, Jacob. Verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, Stephen Dempster sees in this a confession on Jacob's part of his true identity. He writes, uh, Dempster writes, two birth scenes frame Jacob's life. The struggle with Esau in the darkness of the womb when he is born Jacob and the struggle with God in the darkness at the Jabbok River when he is reborn Israel. And then further, Dempster comments, in what amounts to a second birth experience, he fights in the darkness, not with his brother, but with God. He wins the fight by losing, by being broken and facing up to his identity. Consequently, he tells God who he is, Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber. So Jacob, you know, we've seen as we've gone through these narratives, he was rightly named. He grabbed his brother's heel in the womb. This is the way that Hosea puts it. And then as, as the narrative has gone on, you know, Esau said to Isaac at one point, is he not rightly named Jacob? You know, he's wronged me these two times. And then that's the same way he deals with Laban. And now here he is again, wrestling, grabbing, grasping. So the Lord asks him his name and he confesses his identity and his name is changed to Israel. Verse 28, he, he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God. And the, the, the Isra part of the name Israel sounds like persisting or striving or something like that. You have striven with God in Hebrew, it sounds that way, and with men, and have prevailed. This doesn't mean that Jacob overcame the angel. He didn't, obviously, did he? The angel touches him, and his hip goes out of joint. He breaks him. That's not, that's not what we're to learn here. It means, I think, that he prevailed in the sense that he finally learned what he needed to learn. He finally learned that his identity as Jacob, the grabber, the grasper, the heel catcher, that needed to be forsaken, and he needed to take on this new identity as one who would persist for God, who would strive for God. Verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And in this, the Lord reveals himself 
to Jacob. And as a result, verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Let me just read the rest of the, the verses here. Therefore, to this day, oh, sorry, verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. It's interesting here that first you have the water crossing where he causes the people to pass over, and then you have the encounter with the, the angel and, and it's, it's, he's like a destroying angel, but he touches Jacob in the same way that the, lamb, that the lamb's blood is going to be touched on the lintel and the doorposts. And then you have this reference to the way that the people of Israel eat, you know, what they do in their eating. They don't eat this socket of the thigh. It, 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 it sounds like Moses wants you to think of the Passover here, I think. And, he, and he, I think also Moses wants you to think of the, the conquest of the land, the people taking the land. And I think this is also the way that Hosea deals with the passage. So, so how do we respond to this, this part? Well, the Lord has revealed himself to Jacob. And the Lord has, has brought home to Jacob who he is. And in the process, he's broken Jacob. Some, some people, this is what it takes. Not everybody. Some people hear the gospel and they respond wholeheartedly, gladly, and they believe, like Abraham. Some people, like Abraham, they encounter the angel of the Lord, they encounter the one who represents the Lord, and they fall on their face and worship the Lord. Other people, like Jacob, they encounter the Lord, and then they go about their ways. And then they encounter the Lord again, and they keep acting the same way. And finally, the Lord gets their attention. And I think this is encouraging to us because it gives us hope that the Lord can change anybody. The Lord can use anybody. And also, as we continue through these narratives, it's not like there's this, this 180 turn for Jacob. And all of a sudden, he's acting like Abraham. He kind of keeps acting like Jacob to a certain degree. But there's hope for him. There's hope for him, and the Lord never gives up on him. And, and at the end, or as we progress, we're going to see that he will start building altars, as Abraham did. And he will worship the Lord. Some people worship, some people wrestle. But everybody who meets God has their needs met in him. And it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, what's it going to take for the Lord to get my attention? What's it going to take for the Lord to become the dominant reality of my life? So that when I come into a new situation, maybe it's a, a relationship that's really bad, my thoughts are not first, how do I make things right with this person? But I know the Lord, and I need to be right with the Lord, and the Lord can deal with this. The Lord can make this right. The Lord can bring about something that's like a resurrection from the dead in this relationship. He can do that. And, and I submit that we want to be people who, when we come into whatever, it is, whatever kind of difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, whether it's like an estranged brother or a, a new 
living condition or a bad father-in-law or a bad marriage, all this kind of stuff that Jacob's dealt with, whatever kind of situation we find ourselves in, maybe bad children. I mean, as we go on, Jacob's kids, they're going to commit atrocities. They're going to sell one, one, 11, 10 of them are going to sell the 11th into slavery. It's going to be awful. But in all of this, God can bring about things that are like resurrection from the dead. God can bring about new life. And, and I think Moses wants his audience to fix their hearts on him. So there are these statements that model this so beautifully in the Psalms. You know, Jacob is thinking about seeing the face of Esau. Listen to Psalm 17, verse 14. As for me, David prays to the Lord, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 27, 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Let's pray together. Father, would you make us people who love you, who worship you, who live for you. And Lord, would you make us people who are confident, whatever difficulties we face, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, would you make us people who are confident that you are enough for this? Would you make us people who, who fear you? People who want to see your face. People who give our our offerings to you, people who know that we first need to make atonement with you. We need to have that made for us through Christ. And Lord, would you make us people who don't need to be broken by you to walk with you? We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.